the writers of Bible books were inspired by God to employ figures of speech, word patterns and recurring motives to help hearers remember what they'd heard and help them connect it to other parts of the Bible. And as Bible readers, we need to have minds that are attuned to those patterns and techniques. If they are, then we will recognize the motive of the tree of life in the Bible and the principles associated with it that are worked out throughout scripture, even when the tree of life is not being directly mentioned by name. And that will enhance our appreciation of the gospel and the way of the Lord. And more importantly, perhaps, it will help us focus on the reality and substance of the new creation in Christ, of which the Adamic creation is the shadow. So I'd like you to open your Bible, please, at Genesis 3, where we read of the way of the tree of life. I'm sure you're very familiar with the record in Genesis 2 about the tree of life in the centre of the garden. And that tree of life was there in the centre of the garden of Eden. And from what we read at the end of chapter 3, it may be presumed that the way of the tree of life held a central place in the religious devotions of Adam and Eve's descendants, at least those in the line of Seth, I think perhaps until the days of Noah. They would have assembled there to worship. So look at what it says in verses 22 to 24 of Genesis 3. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground for which he was taken. So he drove out man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Cherubim were there to keep the way of the tree of life. That is, they were to prevent unauthorised access to the tree. But over and above being gatekeepers, as it were, they were there to preserve and protect the way of the tree of life so that they could ensure that it was that those who would be granted the right to eat of it can do so at the appointed time. Reading on then through Genesis, from chapter four onwards, curious how many special trees are mentioned in the text. I suggest that the prominence of special trees in the text of Genesis reflects the yearning of the patriarchs for the rest of Eden for restoration of access to the tree of life. In Genesis 6, we have our first reference to a tree outside the Garden of Eden. Perhaps it was before the cherubim at the east of the garden that Noah learned that he was to build an ark for the saving of himself and his family. Now, whether that's so or not is not beside the point. But I think at that time, Noah would have been conscious of the tree of life and the way of the tree of life when God commanded him to construct an ark because the objective of that exercise was defined in Hebrews as being for the saving of his house. So Genesis 6, verse 13 and 14. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make the ark of gopher wood. Room shall they make in the ark and pitch it within and without with pitch. Why does the text, text specify the species rather than just prescribing that the ark be made from wood? I mean, what else would you make it of from? 
So purity, the type of tree, is significant. It's the gopher wood. This is the only reference in scripture to gopher wood, which is transliterated from the Hebrew gopher, because we don't really know what it was for certain. It's impossible to be dogmatic about the identity of this species, although most scholars think it likely that the word refers to a resinous timber such as cypress or cedar. Genesis 6 is the only reference in scripture to gopher wood, which is just translated Hebrew gopher, and it's impossible to be dogmatic about the species, but most scholars think it likely the wood refers to a resinous timber like cypress or cedar. And we certainly know that cypress is widely used in shipbuilding in the ancient Middle East because it's a very tough timber and close-grained and very, therefore very resistant to water. If the consensus view about the identity of gopher wood is correct, Noah may have seen the command to use this evergreen tree for the construction of an ark as appropriate. Think of these comments made by Peter, which give us an insight as to how Noah might have responded to this revelation from God. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, who was witnessing to a society in which the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So conscious of the spirit of rebellion introduced by Adam and Eve in Eden was rampant, Noah may have yearned for the day when the seed of the woman would overcome the seed of the serpent, that day when access to the tree of life would be restored. The ark that Noah was to build prefigured the deliverance from the law of sin and death available through baptism into Christ. And the flood that God told Noah he would send is a type of the judgment that God will pour out upon the nations when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. So it may be that Noah on reflection may have seen in the specification of timber from a specific evergreen tree for construction of the ark, a reference to the salvation that the vessel would offer to its occupants. More importantly, he also may have thought about the ultimate deliverance available through access to the tree of life when it's restored. You recall the first evidence that Noah received that the judgment of the flooded past was also from another evergreen tree an olive leaf plucked by the dove he sent out from the ark. In Genesis 8 and verse 11, we read, the dove came into him in the evening tide and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. This is the first reference in the Bible to the olive tree, which of course is a frequently mentioned tree in the Bible. The olive is a species known for being remarkably fruitful, long-lived and resilient, even in harsh conditions. Later references in the Bible to the olive suggest its link to the promise of life eternal. Olive wood was used to make the cherubim in Solomon's temple. And there we have a direct link to the cherubim who kept the way of the tree of life. In Psalm 58, when compare, comparing men who prefer wickedness over righteousness, David speaks of those who trust in the mercy of God forever and ever and describes them as being like a green olive tree in the house of God. When we write of the kingdom age, Hosea says that Israel's beauty shall be as the olive tree. 
our Lord Jesus Christ, immediately prior to his arrest, trial and crucifixion, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means press. And there he sought strength from God for the trial ahead, which will restore access to the tree of life. And then you recall that Paul likens the extension of the hope of Israel to the Gentiles, to branches of wild olive being grafted into a good olive tree. So the olive tree is a very uh, evocative tree in the Bible and connected with lots of interesting images that can take us to the kingdom age. And anybody who's had who's taken this effort to try to get rid of an olive tree will know how tough and resilient they are. H.B. Tristram makes this observation about olive trees in the Holy Land. To the Oriental, the coolness of the pale blue foliage, its evergreen freshness spread like a silver sea along the slopes of the hills, speaks of peace and plenty, food and gladness. The trunk too, gnarled and wrinkled, often hollow and scathed, yet yielding abundant crops to the extremest old age and renewing itself on the inside, suggests the idea of perpetual youth. As we saw in Genesis 3, there was a place of worship established at the east of the Garden of Eden. If that place had survived till Noah's day, it obviously would have been washed away by the flood. Thus, it was that when, when it was safe for Noah to come and his family to venture forth from the ark, his first recorded act in Genesis 8 verses 20 and 21 is the building of an altar so that offerings could once again be made to God. And in response to that faithful act, God renewed his promise that mercy would be extended to repentant sinners. A hope that was implicit in the promise made regarding Eve's seed and indeed in the pre preservation of the way of the tree of life. So Genesis 8 verses 20 and 21 firstly. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the sweet savour and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. And then continuing in chapter 9 verses from verse 12. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I will set my bow in the bow in the in the cloud and shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth and it shall come to pass when i bring a cloud over the earth that the bow should be seen in the cloud and i will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud and i will look upon it that i may remember the everlasting covenant between god and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth and God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So Noah is, as it were, a new beginning after the flood. Adam and Eve had been one beginning and now we have a new beginning. And a little bit further on in Genesis, in chapter 12, Abraham marks yet another new beginning in God's purpose. It's not surprising, therefore, that in Abraham's life, there are parallels with the arrangements in the Garden of Eden. Adam was formed elsewhere and placed in the garden. 
Abram was formed elsewhere, in Abram's case in Ur, and he was placed in the land of promise, just as Adam had been placed in the Garden of Eden. Although promised possession of the land in, per in perpetuity, Abraham was not given possession during his lifetime. And so we know he underwent a period of probation while God tried him. And in Abram's case, as we know from Romans, his faith was counted under him for righteousness. To a very remarkable degree, Abram's life is intertwined with Sarah's, as Adam's was with Eve. There are, of course, many married couples in the Bible, but Sarah plays a much more prominent and more integrated role in the life of her husband than that of most wives. And the text reveals some very positive aspects of their relationship, including the fact that she acknowledged the authority of Abraham, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Sadly, however, there were also negative aspects in the relationship. In terms of the parallel with the Garden of Eden, the most notable of these is the fact that the text says in Genesis 16 that Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai when she, she suggested to go in unto my maid Hagar to raise up a seed. The words used in Genesis 16 verse 2 are the same, exactly the same as those used in Genesis 3.17 when God criticised Adam for listening to the words of Eve and taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Abram obeyed God's command to leave Abram and travel to the land that God said he would show him, which the record describes in Genesis 12 and verse 5 as Canaan. After initial sojourn in Canaan, Abram and his camp relocated to Egypt before returning to Bethel a second time, as we read earlier tonight in Genesis 13. You may have noticed that we did that reading in Genesis 13 that verse 7 makes the point that the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And that's a point that would appear to be rather superfluous because it was after all the land of, the Can of Canaan, except for the fact that another point is being made, that these races had the potential to be Abram's nemesis. And therefore they are equivalent to the seed of the serpent from the Eden experience. Abram seems to have recognised the parallels between his situation and that of Adam in the Garden of Eden, because trees play a very important part throughout his sojourn in the land. And these trees may have been an expression of his yearning for the restoration of access to the tree of life. And I'd just like to read us to read now Genesis 12, verse 6, which I'll read from the revised version. Um, some of you may have other modern versions which also reflect this. But if you're reading it from the authorised version, listen carefully to the difference. Romans, uh, sorry, Genesis 12, verse 6. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the oak of Moreh, and the Canaanite was in the land. So he went to the oak of Moreh at Shechem. The Hebrew word rendered plain in the authorised version should indeed be oak, as the revised version and most modern translations have. It's the Hebrew word elon, one of six related words which appear to be used somewhat indiscriminately or interchangeably to refer to oaks or similar large, robust trees, such as a terebinth or turpentine tree. Five of those words are thought to refer specifically to one or more of the acorn-bearing oaks. 
And some scholars have attempted to align specific Hebrew words to specific oak species, but their conclusions are not consistent. And it seems unlikely then that precision in this respect can be achieved. And in addition, as one of the prominent Israeli botanists has said, has written recently, botanical classification of oaks is very difficult and fused taxonomists agree on how it should be done or which name should be used. It's impossible therefore to be definitive as to which species of oak or similar tree is being referred to here. But it is a fact that most of the oak species found in Israel are evergreen oaks, which as sometimes referred to as live oaks. That is, they're not deciduous. We're, we're probably more familiar with what we call the English oak or the pin oak in this country, which are deciduous trees. In fact, most oaks are not deciduous and certainly most of those in the land of Israel are not. They're evergreen. And being evergreen, they may have suggested to the men of these times a link with the tree of life. Oak trees are renowned for being sturdy, deep-rooted, resilient, and long-lived. When an oak reaches old age and dies from old age, or when it is cut down, it can actually renew itself by sprouting from the stump or roots. And in time, those new roots may develop into a very strong tree. It is recorded that many centuries after all the oak trees in the Bethlehem area had been cut down, people living around Bethlehem would dig up the roots that remained in the ground and use them for fuel. So durable was the timber. The oaks around Bethlehem were all cut down during the Crusades. They were still digging up those roots in the 19th century and burning them for timber. Those facts would of course be well known to people who depend on the land for their livelihood. And it may well have evoked in them thoughts of the tree of life, quite separately from the fact that the tree was evergreen. Now in Genesis 12 and verse six, there was a tree that could be identified as the Oak of Moray, suggests that it was a large and therefore quite old and perhaps culturally significant tree, significant because of its association with Moray. Well, what do we know about Moray? Was Moray a place or a person? It's impossible to be certain. But as the text says that Abraham was at Shechem, we might presume the name Moray is more likely to relate to a person rather than Shechem and perhaps a person associated with Shechem. So what do we know of the word Moray? Moray is a participle of the Hebrew word Hora. For those who are not familiar with that term, a participle is a word which has the characteristics of both a verb and an adjective. So it's connected to the word Hebrew word Hora, which has the idea of giving spiritual direction. It's a word you might relate to what we might know more, might be more with the word Torah, which is a related word, which the Jews use for those, the books of Moses. The word therefore indicates a teacher or one who gives instruction. Moray may have been then an individual Canaanite who was recognized as a prophet or a teacher. Alternatively, Moray may refer to a group or orders of teachers or prophets who acted as priests or oracles at Shechem perhaps over several generations, and who collectively were known by the name Moray. So think in terms of, say, something like the School of the Prophets. So it could be an individual, could be a class of or order of teachers. Whatever the answer, Abram chose to make a camp at this sacred place. And while there, he was given the second of the promises made to him in verse 7. 
And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there built he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. Did Abram go to Shechem because of the teacher or the teachers who were known to live there? Were they, like Melchizedek, worshippers of the Most High God in the land of Canaan? We cannot be certain, but perhaps they had preserved and were imparting knowledge about the way of the tree of life. Alternatively, and given the passage of time since Noah and the tendency for the truth of the gospel to becoming corrupted over time, there may have been apostate spiritual leaders honoured by the local Canaanites to whom they gave instruction. Now, verse 7 is the first time that Abraham was promised a seed, specifically, and the first time that he was promised possession of the land of Canaan. In response, underlying the religious significance of this site, Abram built an altar unto Yahweh. And he was following Adam's example of worshipping an altar associated with a tree. If that, was, if that were not so, why is the oak mentioned in the text? Because otherwise it serves no purpose. If Moray was a true worshipper of God, the altar may have been intended to reaffirm that the way of the tree of life is taught by Moray required sacrifice on the part of those who would be reconciled with God. On the other hand, if Moray was teaching error, construction of an altar immediately adjacent to the oak tree may have been a deliberate statement by Abram that the teaching of Moray was to be rejected. Abram had just been promised possession of this land and it would be appropriate that he was keen to make clear to the inhabitants the way of the tree of life. We don't have the time to follow this lead, but it is significant that the oak of Moray is named in Deuteronomy 11 verse 30 as the site where the Israelites were to gather to recite the law and dedicate themselves to faithful service immediately after the nation had entered the promised land. And Shechem is a very significant place in Bible history. It's very prominent, particularly in Joshua, in ways which evoke Genesis. Shechem was a city of refuge, therefore a sanctuary for those who might otherwise be put to death following accidental manslaughter. Shechem was a Levitical city, reflecting its history as a centre of religious instruction in the way of the tree of life. And in Joshua 24, Shechem is the place to which Joshua summoned Israel to rededicate itself to God's service prior to his death. And we read in that context in Genesis, in Joshua 24, verse 1, that the nation presented themselves before God, just as Adam did before the cherubim, keeping the way of the tree of life. And some 200 years later, in our readings last week in Judges, in Judges 9, when you come to the, to the time of Abimelech, you, you, we would have seen in general Judges 9 how the oak tree at Shechem was again associated with events in the history of Israel, no doubt chosen by Abimelech to give his uh, coup attempt uh, some credibility. But as I said, we don't have time to go through those links with Genesis tonight, but it's a fascinating study uh, to look at Shechem and the Lake of Moray through Israel's history. From Shechem, Abram moved further into the land, encamping at Bethel, as we saw in our reading from Genesis 13, before he travelled even further south in verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 13. In response to a famine, Abram led, fled to Egypt before returning to the southern regions of Canaan in Genesis 13. 
when tension arose between the herdsmen of Lot and those of Abram, the two men agreed to separate. And in verse 10, Lot was enticed by the lushness of the lower Jordan Valley. Genesis 13, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. Incidentally, that's a different word, plain. That is not the word translated over elsewhere. It's a Hebrew word, kikar, and very means a circle, really. So that is actually a plain. And the Lord lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. It was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou gummest unto Zor. So the land Lot saw put him in mind of the Garden of Eden. And the Hebrew word gan is used here. It's the same as the word used for the garden in Genesis 2 verse 8. Lot speaks of it as the Garden of the Lord. That phrase, such an attractive phrase, surprisingly only occurs in one other place in the Bible. In Isaiah where the parallelism in Isaiah leads us to the conclude that it refers to the Garden of Eden. In Isaiah 51 and verse three, as you see on the slide, it says, for the Lord shall comfort Zion, he shall comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the Garden of the Lord. So you see there the parallelism of the wilderness like Eden and her desert like the Garden of the Lord. The Lord made this, the Lord made this connection with the Garden of Eden is incidental confirmation that the record of the garden was still very front of mind for later generations of believers. Despite the passage of now some 2000 years since the fall, and that they recognized parallels and made connections with that record. But sadly, you will have noted in verse 10, that that territory also reminded a lot of Egypt from which it recently come. As we know, Lot would find that there was much more of Egypt than there was of the Garden of Eden in the region around Sodom and Gomorrah. Did Lot verbalise the impression made on him that the plain of Jordan resembled the Garden of Eden? Perhaps he did. We can't be sure. But flick back for a moment to Genesis chapter 3. The record of Lot's interaction, uh, uh, sorry, the, the record of Lot's actions in Genesis 13 echoes Eve's fall in the Garden of Egypt. In the garden, we read in Genesis 3, verse 6, about Eve. Genesis 3 and verse 6. And the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was a pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise and she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. In doing so, Eve established a path which would be followed by her descendants in generations to come. She saw, she desired, she took. Coming back then to Genesis 13, verses 11, Lot followed this path when seeking to resolve the tension which had arisen between his herdsmen and Abram's. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld, he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. He desired it before the Lord destroyed 
Solomon and Gomorrah, even as the Garden of Eden, like the Garden, like the land of Egypt, it's our compass unto Zor. Then Lot chose, he took all the plain of Jordan and journeyed east. So Lot moved his encampment to the plain of Jericho, to an area that had become uh, Jericho, being named here, even though he went to live near Sodom, because it's a city that became linked with a curse, as we see in Joshua 26. And topographically, Jericho is almost the lowest point in the land. After Lot's departure, Abram remained in the high country above the valley of the lower Jordan up around Shechem. And while there, and apparently while still somewhere near Bethel and Shechem, the Lord promised Abram and his seed possession of the land forever. Verses 14 and 15. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look thou from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward, all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Abraham is invited to look in every direction. Where from? Well, we're not told for certain, but Mount Ebal is just north of Bethel, and Ebal has an elevation of 940 metres above sea level, which means it is 1,198 metres above Lot's plain of Jericho. It is, in fact, the highest point in that part of the land. I think it's likely, then, that Abraham was directed to this pinnacle because from that spot he would have been able to see as far as Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, and to the Dead Sea beyond in the east. In short, Abram would have been able to see all the habitable portion of the land of Canaan. Now we saw already in Genesis 12 verse 7 that this land had been promised to his seed. Now in Genesis 13, Abraham is promised for the first time that both he and his seed will possess the land forever. The Hebrew is ad olam, forever. This is the first time that this term olam has been used in God's dealings with Abram. The word olam is first used in scripture in Genesis 3 verse 22 in the context of what would happen if Adam would eat of the tree of life after he had sinned. The prospect of immortality, which Adam had spurned when he listened to Eve, was now being offered implicitly to Abram. So having received that remarkable promise, Abram relocated then to the south, and he pitched his tent at Hebron. Now Hebron is not the highest peak in that part of the land, but Hebron is the highest settlement in all the land of Canaan. Abram did not just choose a high hill, however, on which to set up his camp. He pitched his tent near a substantial tree. And we'll read Genesis 13, verse 18. And again, I'll read it to you from the revised version. And Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. The Oaks there is the Elon plain again. It's the Hebrew Elon again, which also has version translates as plain. But is it singular or plural? The revised version and many other translations put it in the in the plural. Most translations, in fact, translate Elon as plural, and they use words like oaks or terebinths. 
The Jerusalem Bible is an exception in rendering the word in the singular, as in as is the American scholar Power Smith, who renders it as terebinth. I think it's likely that there was just one large tree rather than a grove of large trees. Memory itself means vigorous or lusty. Now, is this just because I want to think it's one tree? Well, not really. There's historical records that support this. In ancient times, the Jews understood this as a reference to a single tree. Josephus records that Abram dwelt near the oak called Ojiges. The place belongs to Canaan, not far from the city of Hebron. So here, Josephus assigns a specific name to a single oak tree. In another place, he identifies it again as a single tree, a very large turpentine tree. And the report goes, this tree has continued ever since the creation of the world, we read in War of the Jews. Again, Josephus's comment suggests it was regarded as a single significant tree. Such a large tree flourishing in the harsh environment near Hebron would attract attention. Was Abram influenced in his choice of this site by Lot's actions? He had just witnessed his beloved nephew mimic the actions of Eve in the garden. Immediately after Lot's departure, he had been promised the land that would be possessed by him and his seed forever. Now Abram is drawn to a place with a significant tree, probably an evergreen. And Abram may have seen in this a reminder of the tree of life and the need to respect the way of the tree of life. His first recorded act on reaching this site suggests that because Abram constructed an altar at this site so that he could offer sacrifice to God in the way appointed. Although his large flocks would need to move across a vast area of land, this encampment appears to remain Abram's headquarters for many years. In the next chapter, it's referred to in, in verse 13, Genesis 14 and verse 13. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew now he dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anah. And these were confederate with Abram. And we read of this camp again in Genesis 18 and verse 1, by which time his name has been changed to Abraham. And it was here the Lord appeared to him in the form of three angels. And the Lord appeared unto him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. On that occasion, twice we are told in the record that Abraham and the angels commune together under the tree, using the singular, presumably I think meaning the oak of memory. As I suggested, we should consider it a single tree rather than a grove. Genesis 18 verse four, firstly, let a little water I pray you be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Obviously a very specific tree. And in verse eight, he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So there is a specific tree here at this campsite, Hebron, where Abram has based himself. Now, that's all we have time for today. There's a lot more trees in Genesis which we'll come to in our next class. But I hope that what I have done and started to demonstrate is that there are passages, especially in this case in Genesis, where trees play a prominent part in the record. And the circumstances in which they are mentioned often harken back to the tree of life. 
And as we noted at the outset, it's a deliberate feature of the inspired word that it employs pictures, word pictures and motives that are repeated throughout the text to help us as, well, initially as hearers in the old times and now as readers, to make connections and to apply lessons from the whole counsel of God when considering any, the import of any passage under discussion. And Lot's words in Genesis 13 confirm that such connections were indeed made by God's people in ancient times. And indeed, for us in the next week or so, the next couple of weeks, as we continue our readings in Isaiah, you will note how prominent are the references to the trees in Isaiah. And there are some very lyrical passages coming up in our daily readings in the next couple of weeks, which feature trees in relation to the kingdom age and the time to come. And think about how, as we read those in the next few weeks when they come up in our readings, how they connect up with the promise made in Genesis 3. So that's all we have time for tonight in terms of sacred trees of Genesis. And in our next class next week, we hope to come back to further such incidents in Genesis. And then our final class in a fortnight, you might still be wondering, thinking there's lots of threads hanging down and un unconnected. Well, hopefully in our final class, we'll bring that all together and show how it all points forward to Christ and indeed Christ becomes a fulfillment of these things. So I hope that's been of some interest and has whetted your appetite for where we're heading over the next two weeks. we start to look at a few of the themes that arise from the tree of life. And in that session, in tonight's session, we're going to look a bit further at incidents involving sacred trees in Genesis and how they draw upon the record of the Garden of Eden. So I'd like you to open your Bible, please, back at Genesis chapter three. We'll reacquaint ourselves with what is recorded about the way of the tree of life. I think we can presume that the tree of life or the way of the tree of life, held a central place in the religious devotions of Adam and Eve's descendants, at least in the line of Seth, at least until the days of Noah. And I think that's where they would have assembled to worship. So we read at the end of Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Obviously, with the purpose or the objective of denying him access to the tree of life. In verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So verse 24 tells us that the cherubim were to keep the way of the tree of life. That is, they were to prevent unauthorised access to the tree. They also were to preserve or protect the way of the tree of life. To ensure that those who would one day be granted the right to eat of it can do so at the appointed time. Brother Lane Rittmeyer has sought to represent these arrangements that we've just read about 
diagrammatically in this illustration from one of his books. As you can see from this attempt to create an image of the closing verses of Genesis 3, the cherubim were appointed as intercessors through whom Adam and Eve and their descendants could offer sacrifices in the way appointed after they had been expelled from the Garden of Eden. We might reasonably expect, therefore, that an awareness of those things were kept alive in future generations of faithful servants of God. And I think, it, or I hope that in our first class last week, we started to see that this was the case. So let's just briefly summarize what we considered last week to bring us back up to speed. We considered the how these events and the, this record, the, these later records in Genesis evoke the text that we've, we find in Genesis 3, 2 and 3 about the tree of life. We looked firstly at the case of Noah and considered the significance of the instruction that he should make the ark out of gopher wood. And we also considered the relevance of the olive tree, which provided Noah with the first evidence that the flood had subsided. And his first act on emerging from the ark was to build an altar so that sacrifice could be made. I suggest because the altar at the east of the Garden of Eden had of course been washed away. Now Noah marked the beginning of a new phase in God's plan and purpose and so did Abraham and we looked at his example too. We came with Abraham to Shechem and the Oak of Moray and we noted that members of that place and this tree are called upon by Moses and Joshua and later by Bimelech. We also saw how the record of the Garden of Eden was called upon at these times. We then considered how Lot was thinking of the Garden of Eden when he decided to move to the plain of Jericho. And after Lot departed in Genesis 13, Abram relocated to the south and he pitched his tent at Hebron near a substantial tree. We saw that although most translations speak about a grove of trees, there was in fact one significant tree, the Oak of Mamre. And as had been the case at Shechem in Genesis 12, Abram's first recorded act on reaching the site of that tree in Genesis 13 was to construct an altar so he could offer sacrifice to God in the way appointed. Thus, he again was mimicking the arrangements that had been established at the east of the Garden of Eden with the cherubim with the flaming sword. And you recall that we left Abram last time at Genesis 18 when he was camped at Hebron, encamped near the Oak of Mamre. And you recall that the record in chapter 18 specifically referred to the fact that he sat under, under the tree at that place. And the next significant tree in Abram's life is mentioned in Genesis 21 at the end of the chapter. And we read in Genesis 21 of the covenant that he made with Ahimelech at Beersheba. And I'll read those verses, verses 32 and to 33 of Genesis 21 from the revised version. Wherefore Abram called that place Beersheba because there they swear both of them. And they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech Abimelech rose up and Phicol the captain of his host and they returned unto the land of the Philistines and Abram planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord the everlasting God. There's a huge amount in those verses actually of, 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 of rich fertile territory for Bible study 
calling on the name of the Lord is a characteristic phrase used by the faithful in Genesis. It was first used in the days of Seth, the lion which remained faithful to the worship that was overseen by the cherubim who kept the way of the tree of life. And then, in, as we saw in our last class, Abram called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 12 when he was at Bethel, immediately after leaving the oak of Moreh. And he did the same when he returned to Bethel after sojourning in Egypt and before he separated from Lot in chapter 13. And then Isaac called upon the name of the Lord when he arrived at Beersheba in chapter 26. Now, if you look at the context of all those occasions, these were times when the patriarchs acknowledged their need for God's guidance and help. And later in scripture, calling on the name of the Lord is a concept associated with faithfulness, deliverance, and the kingdom age. We haven't got time to obviously to go to a look at all of these, but it's a fascinating study, uh, which you may wish to pursue in your own time, calling on the name of the Lord. In First Chronicles 16, and verse 8, it uses the term in the context of bringing the ark to Jerusalem, which, of course, represented yet another new beginning and a foreshadowing of the new creation in Christ. In Psalm 14, in verse 4, it describes the workers of iniquity as those who call not upon the Lord. In Psalm 80, verse 14 to 19, it uses messianic imagery and language evocative of the tree of life and resurrection when it talks about calling on the name of the Lord. Joel 2 verse 32 says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. So deliverance is connected with this act of calling on the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 uses the phrase in the context of the pure language which will be established when Messiah reigns, when there will be no conflicting worship no challenge to God's authority as happened when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Zechariah 13 and verse 9, it links with the theme, the theme of the national restoration of Israel and the kingdom. And then in the New Testament, in Acts 9, 14 and verse 21, it identifies the early Christians as those that call on thy name. In Acts 22, verse 16, Paul is, is exhorted, by Ananias to be baptized and washed away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And you can imagine how a man like Paul would immediately draw the links in the Old Testament that we've just briefly summarized. And then in Romans 10, 13, Paul assures us that whosoever, that is, in context, whether Jew or Gentile, shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And then in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, it describes the members of the ecclesia in Christ as those in every place call upon the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's a fascinating theme that is worth pondering in, in more detail, but we just have to skim over it today. But you can see the sorts of ideas that come from this act. The most concentrated use of the concept of calling upon the Lord is found in the Messianic words of Psalm 116 where the following is written of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse one, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice. He obviously was calling on the name of the Lord and my supplications. Verse two, he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. Remember, all these are statements that are connected with the Messiah in that Messianic Psalm. 
Verse four, then I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord. I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And finally, in verse 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. And I put it to you that if you were to bring together all of those passages, you would see that calling upon the name of the Lord is a concept that embodies the principles of the way of the tree of life. So having done that, we just we read that he planted a tamarisk tree. What do we know about the tamarisk tree? Well, a tamarisk is the Hebrew eshel. It's a relatively small evergreen tree with extremely durable wood. There are nine species of tamarisk in the land, and so it's impossible to be specific as to which one was planted on this occasion. But all varieties of the tamarisk are noted for their remarkable ability to thrive in harsh conditions and to thrive on land which is salty, sandy or otherwise barren. An Israeli botanist who has made a study of the trees of the Bible describes the tamarisks that are endemic to the area around Beersheba in this language. This is a modern Israeli botanist commenting on, on this the species that are around Beersheba. From afar, its thick crown looks like grey green pillows. Its heavy shade attracts passers by, shepherds and their flocks. Anyone sitting in the morning shade of the tamarisk feels its pleasant coolness. As a sojourner raises his eyes to the tree's branches, he will be surprised to discover shiny droplets of water on the thin branches. These droplets, most plentiful after a humid night, evaporate towards noon. With morning as the sun warms the air, the water evaporates and so cools the tamarisk branches. So like a natural air conditioning system. So this tamarisk tree's propensity for collecting moisture from the atmosphere helps it to endure in the harsh climate of the Negev. And presumably it was this fact and the fact that it was evergreen, thus evoking memories of the tree of life, that led to being planted by Abraham to mark this agreement. And I think it would seem the tree was intended to signify what Abraham hoped would be the enduring nature of his covenant with Abimelech. You'll remember, you'll notice in verse um, 33 that he calls the everlasting God, he calls upon, he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That hope then is reflected in having planted the tree and Abram called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, which is a divine title, which speaks of eternity. And as noted in our first class, the first use of Olam in the Bible is when the Elohim described the effect of eating of the tree of life, which in verse, in a verse we read few minutes ago from Genesis 3 verse 22. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of, the, of life and eat and live forever for Olam. We've also noted the first use of Olam in the life of Abraham was when the land was promised to him and his seed forever in Genesis 13. I think then in this act at Beersheba, Abram is expressing his yearning for the restoration of access to the tree of life. 
In Genesis 22 and verse 2, moving on in the record, God commanded Abram to go to the land of Moriah and to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. I think it's likely that Abram was bewildered by this command, or at least somewhat challenged. Despite his bewilderment, he obeyed without hesitation. And perhaps even more remarkably, there is no hint in the text that Isaac tried to resist when Abram laid him on the altar in verse 9 of Genesis 22. So in fact, both men are demonstrating an extraordinary degree of faithful obedience and confidence in their God. Now, we won't turn there, but we know from the record in Hebrews 11 that Abraham, and I think presumably Isaac, was confident that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he did obey what God appeared to be asking him to do. We read in Hebrews 11 that by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, obviously not in fact, but in prospect, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now, when Abram set out on this journey, he did not know how God would preserve or restore the life of his only son, Isaac, his only begotten son, as Hebrews says. But he was sure that some means of deliverance would be provided. And you recall that on the way to the place appointed, Isaac asked his father where the lamb was that would be sacrificed. And we read about Abraham's reply to this question in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for burnt offering. So they went both of them together. God will provide himself a lamb. Significant phrase, isn't it, in the context of Genesis? Abraham knew that God had provided a lamb in the Garden of Eden. And he knew that the promise of deliverance had been expressed in Genesis 3 both in the word spoken to the serpent and in the provision of a place of worship before the cherubim who kept the way of the tree of life. Abraham thought that this very dramatic time must have been very much focused on the events in Eden following the fall. And we know that the angel of the Lord intervened to stop Abraham killing his son. We read that in verse 12. And Abraham then noticed a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, which he took and offered for burnt offering. Verse 13, Abram lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a man caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for burnt offering in the stead of his son. This ram caught in a thicket, of course, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who would be crucified for our salvation. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, as John said, John 1. And through the death of this lamb, provided by God and caught in a thicket, Isaac, in a figure, was raised from the dead. So, in effect, that thicket became a tree of life. I can come over now to our reading in Genesis 35. 
I think we can be certain that Isaac would have imparted to his sons knowledge of the incidents in Abraham's life, which demonstrated the hand of God's in, in his affairs, including those which had links to the tree of life. And so it is in Genesis 35 that the oak near Shechem, that oak adjacent to um, where Abraham is first recorded as building an altar, is referred to again when Jacob was relocating from Shechem to Bethel, following the terrible events in Genesis 34 involving the daughters of Dinah, the daughter of Dinah and his sons, Simeon and Levi. As, they, as the family departed, Jacob told his household to divest themselves of the strange gods which were among them, and these were hidden under the oak, which was by Shechem. Genesis 35 verses two to four. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto my God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. Here we have another new beginning, as it were. Genesis is full of new beginnings. Here's another new beginning. The reprehensible actions of his family suggest that they were being influenced by the false worship of the Canaanites. And Jacob's action here seem, seems to be an attempt to evoke the memory of Abraham's faithfulness and the covenant of the land which had been made at that place. If this is so, it may be significant that soon afterwards, God reaffirmed the promise of the land to Jacob and his seed, just as he'd promised it to Abraham and to Isaac, which we read about in verse 12. And I think also we can see in this determination to rid themselves of the, of the idols, the household gods, a determination to reverse the challenge to God's authority, to do what Adam and Eve had failed to do when they heeded uh, the words of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. When Jacob and his household reached Bethel, he followed Abraham's example and built an altar, verses six and seven. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place Aeol Bethel, because there God appeared before him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, we've already encountered Bethel back in about chapter 28. And it's significant that the record makes the point that Bethel's original name was Luz, which is in fact the Canaanite name for the town. It is in fact the Canaanite name for the almond. Presumably therefore almond trees were plentiful in the area. It's not by accident that the record inserts the name Luz here in the text. The almond tree is a tree linked to resurrection and therefore the putting away of the things associated with mortality. Near the end of his life, when in Egypt, Jacob again reminisced about God's promise to him of the land for an everlasting possession. There's our word Olam again. In Genesis 48 verses three to four, he noted that this promise had been made at Luz, he says specifically in Genesis 48. 
and uses on this occasion the old name, Luz, the Canaanite name. He doesn't invoke the new name of Bethel, which he had given the place himself, but he uses the old name of Luz with its association with almond trees and resurrection. And soon after they had arrived at Bethel, formerly Luz, a key member of his retinue dies, verse eight. But Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel, under an oak, and the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Alon Bakuth translates as the Oak of Weeping. Oak of Weeping. So Deborah is buried under an oak at a place in which, to which the local inhabitants had applied the name of the almond tree. And so we have mourning here for, for the dead linked with a significant oak tree at a place associated with the almond. I think you bring all this together, it suggests a looking forward to the day when access to the tree of life would be restored for the faithful through resurrection. In most translations, the last direct reference to a tree in Genesis is on the surface at least, a complete contrast with everything that's associated with the tree of life. And it occurs in Genesis chapter 40. It occurs in the context in Genesis 40 of the dreams of Pharaoh's butler and baker that Joseph interpreted for them while they were in prison. And you'll be familiar with the record. The butler's dream showed that he would be restored to his position of honor, but the baker would not be so fortunate. He would be executed. So in Genesis 40 verse 19, we read, as Joseph, or from verse 18, for the interpretation of the, of the baker's dream, Joseph answered and said, uh, uh, this is the interpretation thereof. Three baskets are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee and shall hang thee on a tree and the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. This is in fact the first reference in scripture to a person being put to death on a tree. He was to be hanged on a tree. Does hanging on a tree, dying on a tree ring any bells? Well, actually it wouldn't have done so for the people of Joseph's day because there's been no other record previously in the scripture in Genesis to being hanged on a tree. But it should ring a bell for us, a very loud bell, because the language is in fact pointing forward to the crucifixion of our Lord, who was hanged on a tree. It says that in so many words in Acts 5 verse 30 and Acts 10 verse 39. And our Lord's hanging on a tree was an act which would make possible access to the tree of life for those who respect the requirements of God. And we'll return to that thought in our next and final study next week when we look at the tree of life in the New Testament. But finally, in this survey of sacred trees in Genesis, I'd like you to come over, please, to Genesis 50. When Jacob died, he directed that his body should be taken from Egypt and buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. And his son Joseph honoured those wishes. And on that journey, the possession led by Joseph stopped at a significant site to lament the death of Jacob. And we read of that in 
Genesis 50, commencing at verse 7. Genesis 50 from verse 7. Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house. Only their little ones and their flocks and their herds are left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, and there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. The location of the threshing floor of Atad mentioned in verse 10 is unknown. Moses says it was beyond Jordan in verse 10. Beyond Jordan. Now, think about what that means in the context of Moses saying that. Moses never entered the land he never entered the land in his lifetime so if we assume that he compiled genesis while the east of the jordan the phrase beyond jordan would indicate that the site is in canaan and i think that's confirmed by the fact that verse 11 says that canaanites witnessed the morning that they uh, their, their big seven days of mourning we may speculate then that perhaps it was somewhere in the Negev, somewhere south of Hebron, where they were heading for the burial at the cave of Machpelah. Why did this large party wait until they had reached the threshing floor of Atad to engage in this extended and extravagant act of mourning? Why didn't they carry it out before they left Egypt? Or why didn't they wait till they got to Hebron immediately prior to the burial? I think the answer may be related to the meaning of Atad. This is only the only reference to the place known as the threshing floor of Atad. But you'll recall that in our first study, we alluded to Jotham's parable of the trees in, in Judges 9. In that parable, the Hebrew name Atad refers to a large thorny tree, probably a tree uh, botanically known as Zisiphus spina Christi, which grows through much of the land of Israel. Indeed, through much of the Middle East. The Zisiphus spina Christi, the Atad tree in Hebrew, is a very large, vigorous, and evergreen fruit tree. It outcompetes its rivals. And it can develop into a massive tree over time. In the picture, you can see a person standing at the edge of the canopy. It's a very significant tree. It has a very wide spreading crown and it provides excellent shade for shepherds and flocks. These characteristics of the Atad suggested it may have appealed to Joseph as a suitable site for this major act of mourning. It is a long lived, resilient and evergreen tree that outcompetes its rivals and provides respite from the ravages of nature. So it would be evocative of the tree of life and therefore the hope of resurrection and eternal life. That belief in the promises to the, that had sustained the patriarchs embodied. On the other hand, the Atat tree is notoriously thorny, typifying the impact of the curse on the land imposed following Adam's transgression. And you recall that Genesis 3 verse 18 says that thorns would proliferate due to the curse. 
So as a thorny tree, it might also have reminded the mourners of the curse of mortality and the hope of overcoming that curse to access the tree of life. Now, what would not have been known, of course, to, the, to these ancient mourners in Genesis 50, but which modern researchers told us very significantly, is that compounds extracted from the tree's leaves can be used to decrease severe inflammation. And researchers have also found that honey from bees fed on the tree's nectar has antibacterial properties that inhibit infectious disease. But as I said, those modern facts would not have been recognized by those ancient mourners, but it is interesting to think of the tree in that context. It may be significant that later in Egyptian history, several documents include the Sisyphus Spina Christi among 10 sacred trees in Egyptian religion. And today, the, this, this species continues to be regarded as a sacred or holy tree by both Druze and Muslims in the Middle East. The Quran mentions the tree in the context of the reward for the faithful, which is a curious coincidence. And for that reason, it often is planted in Muslim cemeteries in the Middle East. Now, you might say to me, well, so what if the Quran says that it's not an inspired book? And it's, of course, it's not an inspired work. But we need to remember that it's very common for false religions to retain corrupted vestiges of the true worship of God. And indeed, the tree of life is partly one of those vestiges which has been adopted by many false religions. And you will find references to tree, trees of life in most of the world's religions as they've retained this vestige of uh, information as they've been, as they've sort of left, left and wandered astray after the flood that have departed from God, they've nevertheless retained these sorts of vestiges. At the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, prior to his crucifixion, you'll recall that Roman soldiers thrust onto his head a crown of thorns. That, of course, was a parody of his divine kingship. Church tradition suggests that that crown of thorns was made from branches of this tree which is a tradition which is reflected, of course, in the botanical name for the tree, Spina Christi. There's absolutely no biblical support for that tradition, but it would fit and it might well be appropriate in the light of the trees mentioned in the record of Genesis 50. You just couldn't establish that as a certainty, but there's nothing that would say it's wrong either. Now, what I would hope we have seen in these two classes uh, is that the motive of the tree of life and themes associated with the record of the fall in the Garden of Eden remain familiar to later generations in the Genesis record. And their consciousness of these themes and these motives informed their actions and responses to events as God's plan was outworked in their lives. And we'll just briefly move on into Exodus, where the motive of the tree of life and its associated themes can also be seen in events associated with the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And indeed, it, could, it continues to be seen later in Israel's history, as we've already alluded to in, in Joshua and Judges, for instance. But we'll mention just two of these from the book of Exodus without going into any great detail, just to give you a flavour for this idea and how it continues to come out in scripture. 
Firstly, in Exodus 3, Moses came upon a burning bush. Note carefully how this is described in the text in Genesis 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. So we have a bush that burns, but is not consumed. Surely a tree of life. And it's associated with the revelation of Israel's God in the terms expressed in verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. There's the first reference to this idea of, of Yahweh as the God of Abraham, of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In what context is this quoted in the New Testament? Think about where this is, where this, these words are taken up in the New Testament. It's quoted by our Lord when he's engaged with the Sadducees as evidence that the dead will in fact be resurrected. The tree of life. As a second example, come across please to Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, Israel arrives at the bitter waters of Marah. This is the very first incident recorded after Israel's celebration of its deliverance from Egyptian bondage. A bondage which speaks of our bondage to sin and death. Exodus 15 verses 23 to 26. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. At Marah, the Israelites encountered what is what is in effect a tree of life. And this is the incident that comes immediately after they'd been delivered on the night of Passover. And on that night, for each family in Israel, a lamb had been slain as a symbol of the nation's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. A bondage which would be said mirrors the bondage of sin and death. And now at Marah, Moses is shown a tree that has the power to convert bitter water to life-giving sweet water. Surely the Israelites were meant to see in this plant the promise of life is symbolized in the tree of life. Now, I think that Israel was to appreciate the symbolism of this is obvious from the words of verse 26, which followed the healing. You would have noted the language in verse 26 is heavily evocative of what happens in Genesis in Genesis 3. It speaks about obedience to the requirements of God, which Abraham and Eve had failed to render in Eden, which would ameliorate the effects of mortality and in the end bring complete healing from the great creator. If only they would hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God instead of the serpent in Genesis 3, 
and do that which is right in his sight by obeying his command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good of evil and keep all his statutes, which says what they failed to do. He would put upon them none of these diseases, all the disease which come as the effect of mortality. And so God would bring complete healing from the great creator. And verse 26 reveals, concludes with God revealing himself as the Lord that healeth thee, Yahweh Rafika, a divine title, which testifies that we need a healing that only God can offer. A healing from the effects of sin and death, access to the tree of life. So what we've tried to do to get again tonight is look at these motives and these themes associated with the tree of life and see how they take their minds back to that promise, that impl implicit promise in the pro in the words to the serpent and the provision of the place of worship at the east of the garden in Genesis 3, that access to the tree of life would be restored at some point. And as we've said, these motives and these themes continue to be associated prominently with the tree of life. It's particularly prominent in the Psalms, in, in Proverbs, in the prophets. We read of some of that in, during last week's readings in, in Genesis, in uh, Isaiah, and we'll see more of it in the next couple of weeks. But for now, that's where we'll leave it tonight. And next week in our final class in this series, we'll look at the tree of life in the New Testament and how it brings these thoughts together in a way which focuses our mind on Christ and the salvation that is available through him and the great promise that we have uh, to eat of the tree of life in the book of Revelation. So thanks very much for your atten attention. And I hope uh, these things are starting to make some sense. And you can see this theme emerging more clearly. Thank you. In our first two sessions uh, over the last few weeks uh, on the Tree of Life, we've looked at themes arising from the Tree of Life and the references to it in Genesis 3 and seen how those themes are reflected in the Genesis record, particularly when it deals with sacred trees in the text. And there are many similar examples in other books of the Old Testament. We looked at a few of those, just a couple of those last week in Exodus. But perhaps you noticed in your daily readings this week that in yesterday's readings, there was an obscure reference to a tree when uh, Saul was inaugurated as a king. And you might think that's an odd and perhaps an insignificant thing, but you will find that Paul's ministry as a king are bookended by references to trees, one at the very beginning and one, of course, at the very end when he dies. Uh, and there's significance in that. And indeed, in today's readings, you may have noticed in Isaiah references to the myrtle and the um, fir tree in uh, Isaiah 55, and uh, particularly in the context of the kingdom age. So it keeps coming out all the way through. But tonight, we're going to be concentrating on the tree of life in the New Testament. But before we come 
to the New Testament. I want to start in Ezekiel 47 because there's a passage in Ezekiel 47 which is taken up in our reading for tonight in Revelation 22. The final references to the tree of life in Scripture are very appropriately in Revelation. The tree of life is the first tree mentioned in the Bible and it is the last tree mentioned. The term appearing two or three times in the final chapter of Revelation, depending on which translation you use. Now, there's an anticipation of these references in Ezekiel 47, reading in verses 6 and 7, firstly, when the prophet saw very many trees on one side of the river or, or the other of a river. Ezekiel 47, 6 and 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now, when I returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. And verse 12, and by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the, the sanctuary. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. And we note here that Ezekiel says that specifically there shall be many trees on either side of the river. If we come to our reading for, that we've just had in Revelation 22, we'll find that this imagery is taken up in that chapter where the tree of life is linked to Eden restored and to the lifting of the curse that came as a direct consequence of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So Revelation 22 verses 1 to 4. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. But there shall be no more curse, but the Lamb of God and of the but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. So as in Ezekiel 47, verse in verse 2, the tree of life is said to be on either side of the river. How can one tree be on both sides of a river? Well, obviously, it suggests that there is not just one tree, but rather a forest or an orchard. Perhaps we could call it a wood through which the river flows. And some translators, Brother Thomas in particular, uses the word wood in the sense of a forest, but as we'll see later, very significantly to choose that word to describe this collection of trees. There is not just one tree, but rather a forest or an orchard through which the river flows hence the many trees from Ezekiel. And you'll see in verse 3 an unmistakable reference to the lifting of the curse from Eden, while verse 4 speaks of the resumption of intimate and unfettered fellowship with God. And we record that in Eden up to chapter, in Genesis up to chapter 3, fellowship with God had been unfettered through the angels, but it had been unfettered. Now it's to be through the lamb as God's representative. So this wood of life or orchard of life is composed of many individual trees, the leaves of which are said to perform a therapeutic role in the healing of the nations. 
I think this suggests again that the wood is, of life is a symbol of the immortalized saint who in the kingdom age will impart both literal and spiritual healing to the mortal population. They have become one with their Lord as constituents of the tree of life at that time. And so they may be regarded as the leaves of that tree, just as they are the branches of Christ, of the Christ vine, which John refers to in John 15, verse 5. And if you saw that slide we have up prior to the class, uh, an extract from Sister Eusebia Lazius, you'll see she picked up those thoughts in her book, Yahweh Elohim. So this image of the saints as trees aligns with uh, the words of Isaiah in, six, in Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourning are, and to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And so this tree of life in Revelation 22 equates with the trees of righteousness of Isaiah, the planting of the Lord. And Revelation 22 verse 3, as we noted, refers to there being no more curse. So the cursing posed in Genesis 3 is to be removed. And it was imposed specifically because Adam had hearkened to the voice of Eve rather than the word of God as it had been revealed to him. Removal of the curse will mean more than just the end of the blighting effects of mortality. Something much more amazing and wonderful will be ushered in. Unconstrained fellowship with God. Adam and Eve had been denied access to the tree of life in the midst of the garden because they disobeyed God. In content, contrast to their failure, we read in Revelation 22, verse 14, of the blessing of those who are obedient. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Adam had not done the commandments of God. He specifically had breached them. And so he was expelled from the garden. So he could not access the tree of life. But here in verse 14, those who do his commandments have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. And we recall, we recall how cherubim had been appointed to guard or protect the way of the tree of life. And now in the age to come, the obedient will have access, the right of access to the tree of life and unimpeded access to what verse 14 calls the city and therefore sweet fellowship with God. And I think the term the city here refers to the new Jerusalem that's described in, Gen in Revelation 21. Now, the leaves of evergreen trees grow old and fade over time. And even the longest living trees eventually succumb to old age and some malady will afflict them to end their life. But the constituents of this forest of life will never fade because they are incapable of decay. At that time, Revelation 21 verse 4 says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Uh, um, 
and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor cry, neither shall there be any more pain, which is another way of confirming the removal of the curse imposed in Genesis 3. Now, in addition to these references in chapter 22, the tree of life, of course, occurs early in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, where it's found in the conclusion to the letter to the Ecclesia in Ephesus, and specifically in the reward promised to those that hear in that letter, those who overcome. So back in Revelation 2 and verse 7, at the end of the letter to the, Ephes to the Ecclesia in Ephesus, we read this. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the Ecclesians. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, given the precedent in Eden, we may be certain that in this passage, the idea of overcoming involves overcoming the power of sin and death, overcoming that power that afflicts all the descendants of Adam. That is a reversal of the failure of Adam and Eve in Eden. Adam had been expelled from the garden lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now the way to the tree of life, having been preserved by the cherubim, the faithful who endure to the end are printed to access the tree and eat and live forever. And this link to the Garden of Eden is underlined in verse 7 by the description of the tree as being in the midst of the paradise of God. And you'll recall that in Genesis 2 verse 9, it says that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. So this is very much the promise of Eden restored. Now, each of the letters uh, to the seven ecclesias in Revelations 2 and 3 concludes with a promised reward for those who overcome. Where they've got them up there in that table on the screen. But just quickly go through them. In Ephesus, they're promised, the reward is promised to be given to eat of the tree of life. In Smyrna, it is shall not be heard of the second death. For Pergamos, the reward is to give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. To Thyatira, the promised reward is to give power over the nations. In Sardis, he is that he shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In chapter 3, verse 12, for Philadelphia, it's make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out, go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. You notice their language, which... John comes back to in chapter 21. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, to Laodicea, grant to them, he will grant those who sit to the faith, the ones who overcome, will be granted the right to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Now, each of these rewards was promised not just to the members of the individual ecclesia in whose letter they are recorded. Each case, you'll notice the text specifically says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the ecclesias. So all saints who overcome in whatever place or age will be so rewarded. I'd like you to keep your hand in chapter 2, because we'll be coming back there in a minute, but flick across back now to chapter 21 of Revelation. 
because collectively these rewards for those who overcome in chapter 21 are described as inheriting all things, including sonship of God. So we read in Revelation 21 and verse 7, Revelation 21 and verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So back in Revelation 2 and 3, we can regard the various rewards promised in, in those letters in Revelation 2 and 3 as different facets or aspects of the promise of life eternal. And they are all and they are therefore all encompassed in that phrase, all things that the faithful will inherit. Think of it a bit like a precious gemstone that's been finely cut so that as you turn it in different angles and the light hits it from different angles, each facet reveals a new piece of the glory and the beauty of the gem. Well, so these are, as it were, seven aspects or seven facets of that gemstone of life eternal. And each of them relates to that. And so giving to each of the tree of life connects us to the promise of the reward for the faithful in the kingdom age. This shows that even though there was unquestionably a literal tree of life in the Garden of Eden, that literal tree is no longer relevant. It no longer exists and is no longer relevant. What matters now is the way of the tree of life. And eating of the tree of life becomes a metaphor for immortality and the reversal of the curse imposed in Eden. So back in Revelation 2 and verse 7, Brother Thomas paraphrases the promise of Revelation 2 verse 7 in these terms. To the believer that overcomes the world, will I, the Lord, who am the life, give glory, honour and immortality when I come to stand on the Mount of Olives and to re-establish the kingdom and throne of David as in the days of old. It's no accident that in verse 7, the word paradise rather than garden is used. Paradise is a word rich in connotations. Even our own language is a very rich and expressive word. Paradise, from the Greek paradisos, was in fact not really a Greek word, but one derived from a Persian source. And indeed, our English word paradise came to us transliterated from Persian via Greek and Latin and French. It's a very well-travelled word. And it's retained essentially that same form all the way through. The word denotes a park or orchard or pleasure, pleasure ground and carries the idea of an enclosure, as does the Hebrew word gan, the word used for garden in Genesis 2 verse 8. And in the Septuagint, paradisos is the word used in that verse in, in relation to the Garden of Eden. Those in Ephesus and others like ourselves who heed the words the Lord's words to that ecclesia and elsewhere, all those who overcome are given the promise of Eden re-established. So paradise in the Bible, as we said, it's derived from that Persian source and has those very rich ideas. And those who heed God's word uh, will be promised Eden re-established. 
Paradise occurs only three times in the New Testament. The other occasions are Luke 23, verse 43. We'll look at that a bit later. And 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, which appears to be a reference to the era beyond the millennium. The Persian word also came across into Hebrew in a transliterated form as Pardes. As in the original language, it also denotes the idea of a park or forest or orchard. And it occurs only three times in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah 2, about the king's forest. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 5, it referred to orchards in the plural. And then in the Song of Solomon 4, verse 13, as orchard. Now, the Garden of God is a rich theme in the prophets, especially in Isaiah. But we don't have time to pursue it today. Uh, but there's much that's worth thinking about there uh, as you do your daily readings. In the apocalyptic phrase, tree of life, in Revelation 2 and Revelation 22, the Greek word translated tree is zhulon, of which the primary meaning is wood. Or as in fuel for timber. So wood as you might have in your wood heat for burning in your fuel stove or your fuel uh, your wood heater. There is a Greek word dendron, which means a living tree, but that's not the word the spirit chose to use when referring to the tree of life. Although dendron is used in other places in the book of Revelation, in several other places. But God chose to inspire John to use the word julon, meaning wood, rather than the word that means strictly a living tree. In the Septuagint, julon is used for trees or gallows on which people were hung, or upon which the corpses of people who had been executed were hung as a public demonstration. You'll see there a few examples of that Genesis 40 and verse 19, which we looked at in one of our classes, Deuteronomy 22 and verse 21. Verses quoted in relation to our Lord as being cursed for hanging on a tree. Joshua 10, verse 26, and Esther 7, 9, 10. Now, the first of those in Genesis may refer to gallows rather than the tree, but the middle two references imply a living tree. And the Esther passage relates, of course, as we said, to Haman. That the tree so described in the book of Revelation is living is surely implicit from the fact that one may eat of it chapter 2, verse 7, and in chapter 22, verse 2, that it bears leaves and fruit. So clearly it's a living tree, even though it's not the strict Greek word used for that. Why then is the word julon used rather than dendron? Well, the use is not obviously an accident. There's a doctrinal reason for doing so. In the New Testament, julon occurs 19 times. Three of those refer, it's in the authorised version, three of those refer to the tree of life and 11 relate to the arrest and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ in various ways in some cases. When Judas led the high priest guards to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, they were armed with staves, we read in Matthew and Mark and Luke. The ESV, the New International Version, the New King James Version all render the word as clubs. Young's literal translations renders it as sticks. But in each case, the word is julon, in other words, a lump of wood. 
And as Jesus was being led to his crucifixion, he described himself as a green tree, using the words Yulong in Luke 23, verse 31. Now, a green tree by, is, by definition, a living tree. And, of course, Jesus was the Lord of life. To those who believed in Jesus, he offered life. You recall in John 10, verse 10, he said, I'm come that they might have life and that they may, might have it more abundantly. What Jesus Christ offered perishing men and women was more than just healing. He offered them deliverance and the law of death, the reversal of the curse imposed in Eden. As John wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, in the New Testament, there is a word for the cross. Our Lord, our Lord was crucified, a word that's derived actually from the Latin word crux for the cross on which he was executed. And in the New Testament, the Greek word translated cross is stavros, and it occurs 28 times. Most of the uses refer to the cross on which our Lord was put to death. Example, for example, in John 19, several times. On one occasion, it's used generically of the crosses on which the Lord and the thieves crucified with him were executed. Again, in John 19, verse 31. And in a few places, as you, as you recall, it's used figuratively when the Lord speaks of the need for each disciple to identify with him through self-denial and to take up his cross. Uh, for example, in Mark 8, verse 34, but he says it more than once. Given that there's a standard Greek word for cross, and it's one which is used frequently in the Bible, it must surely be significant that another word sometimes is used to refer to the cross. And we do find that Julon, translated as tree, is used in several instances to describe the cross on which our Lord was crucified. Three times in the New Testament, the text says that Jesus was hanged on a tree while twice the cross is referred to as a tree. So of this total of five references, three are in Acts. Hanged on a tree in Acts. Firstly, Acts 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew, and hanged on a tree. Acts 10, verse 39. We are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. And then in chapter 13 of Acts, in verse 29, when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre. In each case, they could have said, could have referred to the cross, but they chose to emphasise that he was put to death on a tree, hanged on a tree. And there were further such examples in the epistles. In Galatians 5, 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And then in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, speaking of our Lord, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. In all five of these places, the word julon is used to refer to the tree on which our Lord was crucified. So what do we have? 
we have the green tree being nailed to a dead piece of lumber, thereby transforming that cross into a tree of life. Through the sinless life of Christ, and specifically to use the language of Philippians 2 verse 8, through his obedience even unto the death of the cross, the faithful have life and have it more abundantly. As Brother J.B. Norris wrote in his book, Christ Died for Our Sins According to the Scriptures, the cross of Christ became in its outworking the tree of life. And that obscure etching that you see on the, on the slide is an 18th century British etching where some very clever man has managed to combine the idea of the cross and the tree of life in one image with our Lord being crucified on the tree of life. We can see how those thoughts come together. We could see the cross then as bringing together both the trees that were in the middle of the Garden of Eden. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a fruit which is always desirable to the mind of the flesh, was never more riper than when Jews and Gentiles conspired against the Son of God and crucified him. The men who conspired against our Lord were men who knew good and evil, but they chose evil over good. They and the systems they represented went on to mould into dust, but the holy, harmless, and undefiled Son of God triumphed over death. He rose to life eternal and thus opened the way of the tree of life for others who believe in him. I could come over now, please, to Luke 23 and verse 41, 40 and 41. Luke 23, you will recall, of course, that there were two others, thieves, who were crucified along with our Lord. They too were nailed to a cross or a tree. And one of those men continued to rail against Jesus in Luke 23, verse 39. But his companion was more contrite and he rebuked him. Luke 23, verse 40 to 41. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And so then in a penitent state, one of the thieves turned to Jesus, expressed faith in him as Israel's Messiah, and sought redemption. In verse 42, he asked, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Our Lord's response harkened back to the Garden of Eden and pointed forward to the glorious reward promised in Revelation 2, verse 7. Verse 43, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And here again is our Greek word paradisos, one of the three uses of that word in the New Testament. In his book, The Genius of Discipleship, Dennis Gillett firstly paraphrases our Lord's response to the penitent faith and then goes on to define what the Lord intended by the word paradise. You are asking me to remember you in the day when I come again, but I give you my assurance today. When that time comes, you will be with me in paradise, in my kingdom. Jesus used the word paradise because it represented all the things that were the very opposite of their then present plight. The garden of God, 
the place of peace, joy, tranquility, life developing and life abundant. Christ was promising joy instead of pain, happiness instead of sorrow, life instead of death. So like Paul, this man was crucified with Christ. You recall Paul says that in Galatians 2 verse 20. This man, like Paul, was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he shall live through access to the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Come over now, please, to John chapter 19. The night before his arrest, our Lord went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he struggled in a battle of wills. An angel was sent to strengthen him, and he overcame, determined to do God's will rather than his own. Now, Adam also had access to the angels before he fell, but he failed when tested in the garden. In contrast, our Lord triumphed in the garden. And after Jesus had been crucified, his lifeless body was taken down in place in the tomb, which had never seen death. John is very clear to make sure we know that, because it was a tomb that was never associated with death. And that tomb was in another garden, verse 41 and 42 of John 19. Or we'll read from verse 40. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day. For the sepulchre was nigh at hand. So our Lord is laid to rest in a garden. How significant it is he should be laid to rest in a garden. At creation, Adam had been placed in a garden, in Genesis 2, verse 8. And now the last Adam also was placed in a garden. When Jesus was resurrected and granted immortality, he took place in a garden. The tree of life is the first tree mentioned in the Bible and is the last tree mentioned in the Bible. And similarly, the Garden of Eden is the first garden mentioned in the Bible. And this garden is the last one mentioned and described as a garden in the Bible. It also is significant that the resurrected Jesus was mistaken for a gardener, as we read in verse 15 of John 20. Because Adam had been the gardener in Eden. Come over now, please, to Acts 16, where we have an interesting use of the word eulon. In Philippi, you'll recall that Paul and Silas suffered persecution for the sake of the gospel. We read of this in verse 22 to 24 of, Luke, of Acts 16. Acts 16 from verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stops. In every other instance in Acts where Zulon is used, it refers to the cross upon which Jesus Christ was crucified. And we've already looked at those in Acts 5, 10 and 13. And as we've seen, 
Paul used the word himself to refer to the tree upon which our, his Lord was crucified in Galatians 3. Now, he is, Paul is the apostle who would say to the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. So as such, Paul may have seen in his experience in Philippi in an earnest of what it is to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. If Paul and Silas did see in this in the stocks this instrument of torture and confinement a link to the suffering of their Lord, it would have strengthened their resolve to endure. They would have seen in these stocks a link to the tree of life and the great deliverance that's promised to all the faithful who in the days of their probation are held in bondage to the law of sin and death. In conclusion, I'd like you to come to John 14. We have referred to this verse in passing in previous classes. And I'm sure your thoughts have often gone there as we've gone through these studies. The promise of Revelation 2 verse 7 is that those who overcome will be permitted to eat of the tree of life. Well, think of what that involves. Eating of the tree of life. It's a promise which in which a, a tree is associated with life. There's a concept of eating and there's the implicit promise of the removal of the curse imposed in Eden. And these features come together in our Lord Jesus Christ in John 14, where he describes himself as the way, the truth and the life. John 14, we'll pick it up from verse 1. That your heart let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You recall that the way was a, was a term by which the early believers were referred to when they, as we speak sometimes of the truth, so they sometimes spoke of the way in Acts. Our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus stated that except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you, in John 6. And Peter noted that Jesus bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. Those who are crucified with Christ, as we've seen in Galatians 2, make, their cross, make that cross their tree of life. Those who endure faithful to the end will experience Eden restored including unfettered fellowship with Almighty God and access to the tree of life renewed for eternity. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That brings us to a conclusion of our studies. I hope you've found that this theme interesting. I hope you've it's helped you not just appreciate the idea of the tree of life in throughout the scripture, but also this fact that God uh, reveals 
the gospel to us in various ways through the word of God, including through the repetition of ideas to help our, our minds link things together and develop a richer understanding of what is promised in God's word. So I hope that's been interesting. I hope you've kept, you've been able to follow the, the thinking. Uh, if it was, if the ideas were new to you, uh, if you are interested in pursuing it further, there is in fact a book uh, that uh, I put this all down in, and a lot more as you can gather because it's 330 pages long, uh, which was published a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, if you are interested, I'd get the book. I don't think. You should hang out waiting for the DVD to be made. Uh, it's not going to happen very soon. But um, if you are interested, perhaps you'd like to follow that up or talk with me, talk with me further when you're next when I'm next at Barossa. So thank you very much for your engagement with this subject, and I hope that's been useful. <laughs>